podcasting world sorry we've been gone for a while but we are back and ready to talk about some new stuff hopefully yes very new stuff yes um kind of we're not sure it either just came out a few days ago or came out last month but there was some discrepancies for sure yeah but uh we're gonna kind of go through the 2020 international society of hypertension global hypertension practice Guidelines. It's kind of redundant. Yeah, a little bit. It's kind of a little overzealous with the name there, but that's fine. Well, they're international, um, so yeah, you know, gotta be fancy. Got, yeah, they gotta be. Gotta be fancy. So um, we've obviously talked a lot about hypertension in previous episodes and whatnot, but um, you know, we're gonna try to com- compare and contrast a little bit. We'll just kind of go through these guidelines. Not a ton different in these, but it will use that as a review for. The uh, American uh, College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, those um, 2017 guidelines. Um, maybe we'll even like discuss some GNC8 and stuff and oh really, really get some stuff going. Doing a throwback. <sighs> but um, just to kind of uh, compare and contrast a little bit, just so you're familiar with them in case you hear the buzz about, you know, when you're just all the cool kids and you're talking about hypertension guidelines, you want to make sure you're up on it. Yep. So... Um, cool. How's, how's life going, man? I haven't talked to you in a while. I just went right into episode mode and didn't even yeah, say no. hi to you. Sorry about that. Chat or anything, because we definitely didn't talk before we started recording. <laughs> right. At all. Uh, yeah, good. What about you? Oh, uh, you know, living the dream. Yeah. Trying to, uh, we've gone down to twice a week COVID testing, okay. so I only have to wear a hazmat suit twice a week, so Is that's that good. from less demand? Yeah, and I just, um, a lot of the patients that we end up treating, like, testing now mm-hmm. completely asymptomatic they yeah. are just doing it for peace of mind and yeah. we're just seeing less and less and less positives like at least in our testing i right. know we've had some spikes here recently i think at musc to get an elective surgery you have to be tested first yeah. so like a whole bunch of people are, are getting tested and there's some places that won't let you come back to work and yeah. stuff unless you've done it and so um we for a while there we had the cool test where it was mm-hmm. just the the q-tip we just swab around the tip of the nose like right. on both sides no big deal dx like i don't we don't know if those are accurate since you're not they expected us to get more positives mm-hmm. they try to tell them like look they're not these patients that are t- we're testing they're not that's you know they don't have the symptoms most of right. them and uh so no we want you to use these and they send us those, those lobotomizing <laughs> test trips again we're like oh no so that's the best way to describe them. back up uh 18 inches up the nose again golly yeah it's rough uh, so you ready to get back to clinic? I am. Yeah. Nice. We've, uh, done heavier days on Monday and Fridays, seeing patients, but yeah, June is in South Carolina is not a great time to be in a hazmat suit. So like, no, yeah. and it only gets worse with July and August. That's what I hear. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. Oh, I'm really hoping we don't get another spike like they're kind of worried about, but yeah, we shall see. Yeah. I will say in general, just from an, uh, community pharmacy standpoint have not been dispensing many acute medications for like, you know, usually you're getting the whole upper respiratory stuff, albuterols and antibiotics and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Barely any, whether it's people just aren't going to the doctor or maybe all the social distancing is just going to just really lower a bunch of curves as far as acute respiratory stuff. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. It's going to be interesting. And it will. it's either we're not going to mention anymore or we'll have 14 more episodes about <laughs> COVID. You'll, you know now. But anyways. Let's hope for the former. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Uh, let's go through these guidelines. Sure. So um, I guess, I don't know, the first thing I noticed that was slightly different comparatively is the uh, how they actually classify 
you know, the different categories of blood pressure and hypertension. Right. So our, I say R, the, the American Heart Association guidelines, um, I say R as if I was helping. <laughs> I, I helped them write them, so it's, I feel like I, I, I own a piece of it. Corbino um, et al. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> the worst guidelines of all time. Um, but uh, normal blood pressure is considered less than 120, um, and you have to have, and that's systolic, obviously, and a diastolic of less than 80. So you, both of those numbers have to be um, less than the listed numbers. Otherwise, the person's considered to be um, either stage one or stage two. Right. Elevated blood pressure is considered to have a systolic of 120 to 129, and they have to still have a diastolic less than 80. Right. Um, then when you move into actual stage one and stage two, so stage one is systolic 130 to 139, or if a patient has a diastolic of 80 to 89, they automatically get thrown into stage one. Yep. Um, which that took me a little bit when I, these, I remember when 2017, these guidelines came out, that took me a while to, I think we literally, cause I'm pretty sure we did our first episode yeah, on this. And I remember us one. having a bit of confusion about that three years ago. It was, it was really before we emphasize the need to like research stuff <laughs> right. so just coming off the dome to know things for sure yeah yeah um but uh we still haven't fully learned that lesson but like we're getting we're improving i feel Maybe like by 1000 <laughs> we'll have we'll finally yeah, we'll get there put in the work um and then stage two uh systolic greater than 140 um or diastolic greater than 90 so yeah. literally you could have a patient that has a blood pressure of 122 over 85 mm-hmm. and they technically would be stage one mm-hmm. so um the the big kind of i guess argument against our uh guidelines when they came out in 2017 was was basically that okay well now every single person on earth is going to have hypertension it's mm-hmm. going to greatly increase the medication burden you know from a public health standpoint um it, it, so it, there's some debate there obviously mm-hmm. and it kind of i think we got so focused on that versus the fact that if the person doesn't have risk, they a lot of times, even stage one, they say, we'll just do lifestyle management right. to kind of um, treat them initially. Right. Um, so, but that, I just remember that being a big kind of just talking point. And, you know, they emphasized which other guidelines have, but I feel like it's been more emphasized in recent guidelines, the importance of getting more than one reading, two or more ideally at two different situations. And um, the 2017 guideline comments on that significantly and then we'll talk about this guideline today and kind of um, there's a couple things that they recommend in regards to that as well but just making sure they have true hypertension and they didn't just have some isolated read that you're going to start treating them for yeah so the the international guidelines basically say that a normal blood pressure is anything systolic less than 130 and diastolic less than 85 right so anybody less than 130 over 85 they're good to go. Right. No problems there. Um, the next classification is we have what they call elevated risk. We have, They call theirs um, high normal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's anybody who's 130 to 139 and or 85 to 89 diastolic. Um, grade 1 hypertension um, would be 140 to 159 and or diastolic 90 to 99. Grade 2, obviously systolic above 160 and then above 100 diastolic. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's more kind of like our old, like JNC seven, right. Uh, kind of standards that we, they, they've kind of fallen back on. And you have to think, so this is an international guideline. Mm-hmm. So they're talking to a lot of different countries and a lot of different situations. Um, and so we like to think that, you know, hypertension 
is just the same all over the place, but I'm sure there's other guidelines in other countries that might have even more relaxed uh, blood pressure guidelines. And then, you know, America might have some more strict as far as how low we want the blood pressure to go. So they're walking a line and they're, you know, I, I don't think it's totally like, I, I truthfully, I would have expected something a little more lenient yeah. from an international guideline, truthfully. I mean, if you guys want to cause problems, that's fine. <laughs> no, I, th- I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, there's probably some merit, I guess, to the way that the argument for ours being a little too strict. But, um, you know, ours were based primarily on the sprint trial that showed when you're getting lower blood pressure goals that we kind of see better outcomes, even in elderly patients. And so we were kind of quick to adapt that study and the – you know, secondary analyses of that study and to kind of include that, but I think not everyone is right. ready to jump on board yet. And this guideline addresses issues with, you know, patients not having access to medication at all, mm-hmm. if, you know, whether it's because of cost or, or you know, literal availability. Um, so, you know, dealing with a lot, a lot of different situations as opposed to just a strictly American guideline. Yeah. Um, they also go into quite a bit of detail as far as uh, proper measuring of blood pressure. Yeah, they they even have this really cool diagram um, that has a guy with that's doing like a self-manual um, blood pressure cuff. Because obviously in the, the American Heart Association guidelines also talk about like white, ho- white coat hypertension and mm-hmm. all that risk um, of like just the patient being nervous and that's what's running their, their right. BP up. So they have this whole diagram as far as like you know, how to set the patient up, making sure that the, they're not talking, um, that the cuff fits properly. I had a patient just the other day whose blood pressure came back at like 190 something is what was recorded on the, in the vitals in the chart. And I was like, mm. Oh, goody, yeah. <laughs> let's go deal with this at eight and eight AM. Um, and it, it turned out it was, it was still high, but it was not that high, but right. the, the patient had, they had used a pediatric cuff on a patient that was like morbidly nice. obese. Nice. So I don't even know how the heck they even got it to stay like, Velcroed, um, but it was like a little small child's cuff they found in the peds wing. So I don't know why they did that, but um, yeah, it dropped her blood. Her systolic dropped like an extra 25 20. points or 30 points or something like that just when you switch the cuff. But um, how, I mean, you work in community. How often do you see people come in this, like to use the? Do you guys have a blood pressure monitor, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah. How often do you see people actually sit there and wait for a few minutes before sticking no. their arm in? They sit right down. They're not even fully right seated when they no. get their arm in that yeah. thing. So we have the same issue like which with, is and so I'll have patients come over and say hey it told me because it'll tell you if it's high hey it gave me this reading is this high and I'm like just go sit down for a few minutes you know relax you know blah 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 and then you know you're you're literally sweating because you walked in here from the you know July heat mm-hmm. just calm down and then, then they could check it again it's down ten points and we're all good so you know. this must have been from last year right well but it's not July yet okay. right thanks for <laughs> the terrible analogy call out my anecdote <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, Actually, the machine has been shut down for many months because of COVID. So, so, yes, it was from last year. Honestly, we have no idea what anyone's blood pressure is. <laughs> but we know we didn't give them COVID. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I'm a, a, my dad was dealing with hypertension and stuff. Well, I don't think he listens to this, so he won't know that I'm talking about him. Um, but he Not that he'd be okay with it. He just won't listen. He won't listen and hear about it. But, no, he, I was giving him such a hard time. because every He would text me or call me or whatever and be like, hey, my blood pressure is really high. Like, what do I, and I'm like... Okay, where are you? I'm at, you know, Publix or whatever had a mm-hmm. blood pressure cuff. I'm like, okay, did you, did you sit for a second, relax? He's like, well, no. 
I, I literally had that conversation with him five times. My dad's a really smart guy, uh-huh. but he just has no patience for waiting five <laughs> minutes for no reason in a store. Because now he texts me back like three minutes later, all right, it's down. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> like every time, I was like, dude, stop texting me if it's hot the first time. Price is averted. You have to wait till the second reading before you text me. That's the new rule. Yeah. And right. they do seem, the guidelines do seem pretty big on automated cuffs. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, other, other recommendations they make. They want the blood pressure measured in both arms, preferably at the same time. Have you ever had both arms measured at the same time? I have not. I have not, and I've never seen that done either, but they they say that. Um, if there's a consistent difference between the arms, like greater than 10 millimeters of mercury off, repeat the measurements, and then just generally they want the diagnosis made over two to three office visits um, at multiple week intervals, whether it's like the next week or a month later, uh, depending on how bad they're, you know, their initial reading was before you confirm and they want at least one of those to be out of office to catch either white coat hypertension or to catch uh, what they call and i think is referred in other guidelines as well masked hypertension Mm. where their blood pressure is good in the office which is i've never seen this before but their blood pressure is good in the office then they go out at home and that's when it's all elevated so they want at least one reading outside the office i'm only calm when i I know and you know i never understood the white coat hypertension thing and i don't have it but I went to the doctor recently, and I don't know if it was COVID or what, but I was just kind of feeling myself getting kind of worked up. And I'm like, yeah, I could see somebody who's a really anxious person just get their blood pressure go all out of whack with the, with the doctor's visit. I, m- I remember one time I was um, checking the lady's blood pressure, and um, it was for a second time. It was the first time it was real high. So I was like, I'm going to check it again. And then, and uh, I was wearing scrubs that day instead of like a white coat or anything. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't know. So she goes, I don't think it's really that high. She goes, I just get really bad white coat hypertension. I was like, well, I got great news. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not even wearing a white coat. <laughs> she started laughing. I was like, that's probably not good for uh, getting your blood pressure to go down. But um, the other thing that was just kind of interesting is when they talk about the the different blood pressure measurements and whatnot, they mentioned that uh, if you get a blood pressure of less than 130 over 85, mm-hmm. they say remeasure within three years. Yeah, I know. Like that's, I mean, I, I guess again, so like international, good, like, right. it, you know, maybe the patients don't have access to care and they're just trying to include literally everyone. Um, but ideally, right. It's like, Oh, uh, 129. See you in three years. Right. <laughs> I know? feel like it's going to be higher than that in three years, right. but you know, but they do say people who are at higher risk a year. Yeah. So, you know, I guess they're, they're talking about young, healthy people with no other comorbidities. Yeah. Um, the other thing, did you see the part where they talk about standing blood yes. pressure? Yeah. Um, that to be used, uh, um, in, in treated hypertensive patients after one minute and again after three minutes when they are uh, when they have symptoms suggesting um, postural hypotension. Mm-hmm. They also say to do it at the first visit in elderly and people with diabetes to do a standing blood pressure. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I've seen it done. Yeah. I but mean, usually it's when somebody's complaining of symptoms, mm-hmm. you know. So, I'll have to, I wonder, I'm curious to see if they, may, I have to go back and look at the uh, AHA guidelines to see if they mention anything about that, but I don't typically think of a standing blood pressure, um, right. just random measurement. They also mention um, unattended office mm-hmm. blood pressure, so leaving the room and let the robot take care of it. Yeah, you know? which I believe, if I'm if I remember correctly, is what they did in Sprint. Yeah, they, they had. They did, oh, there was nobody in the room. In Sprint? No, I think they uh-huh. did the. Um, what the heck was that machine called? It was like the uh, yeah, VP something or other. Yeah. Um, but they, I th- I'm pretty sure it was like self-administered blood pressure alone because that was one of the things they were trying to avoid was. White the coat. white coat hypertension and mass hypertension, all that. Which um, I'm sure they call it white coat hypertension, but I'm sure just being in a doctor's office for some people, you know, can affect yeah. it as opposed to being at home. For sure. Um, all right. So, yeah, we'll let you read the rest of that. We won't keep going on about 
different ways of measuring blood pressure. But um, what do you want to look at next? So they talk, you know, about general lifestyle recommendations, just like any of the other guidelines based on your risk and based on whatever blood pressure you're coming in with. Um, they mentioned their goals. Um, so we can talk about goals a little bit, uh, which I, I guess we talked about diagnosis, but their goals are generally less than 130 over 80 uh, unless you're elderly. So if you're over 65, they recommend less than 140 over 90, um, which is a little bit different than the American guideline and uh, which might push that age up a little more, maybe closer to 80 before saying we're going to be more lenient with the blood pressure, um, which, you know, Mike was talking a little bit about um, high vet earlier, which would be more in that. That was before we started recording. Oh, yeah. Man, it all runs together. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, when you see stuff like um, 65 and uh, patients over that, you know, usually I always think of 80 and older because high vet was the was the study that looked at indapamide in patients that were 80 to a hundred years old. Um, they were all, um, veterans and they were living on their own. So none of them were in like nursing homes or anything like that. They were all free living, um, 80 to hundred year olds. And they were on indapamide. And the goal in that study was 150 over 90, um, blood pressure. And they did see a decrease in mortality and all that good mm -hmm. stuff. So they've kind of extrapolated that down. I haven't seen any other like direct placebo controlled trials where they've done, 60, 60 or 65 years old and then had the same relaxed blood pressure because Sprint actually showed even in older patients that we still get some benefit when we right. um, have the lower blood pressure goals. I think, you know, and I, in the, our, the American uh, guidelines also kind of reemphasize too, but, you know, if it is an elderly patient, obviously want to, if they're having symptoms, they're having side effects, then we can be definitely more relaxed. Right. So it's going to have to be patient specific. But yeah, I mean, I still try to, I mean, I typically think of if they, as long as they can hand tolerate it, I mean, 130 over 80, even for elderly patients, especially I feel like nowadays when, you know, we're at 60, I don't even feel like is that old it's for a not lot even of old patients. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we basically are going to live to 200 soon. We very well could. Come on, Elon Musk. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Invent something. If you can send people to uh, the moon for fun. Right. Then yeah, let's, I let's can't wait. I can't age. wait to go. It's going to be great. <laughs> Um, but they do, they kind of, throughout the guideline, they list like their essential recommendations and then their optimal recommendations, yeah. which I kind of actually like yeah, because real life is a little more stratified and you're not, everything's just not going to be optimal. So as far as goals go, their essential recommendation is we want to get their blood pressure down some, right? So the, we want it down at least, uh, 20 systolic and 10 diastolic. Good. And there's some evidence behind that. There, uh, is an up to 50% um, reduce risk of cardiovascular events just by decreasing um, the blood pressure that much in someone with hypertension. So that's great. So if we can get their blood pressure down some, we're at least going to do some benefit to at least less than 140 over 90 is like their minimum goal and within three months. But then we move to the optimal side. And if we have a patient that is adherent and they're following up and we can monitor and we can get an optimal situation now we're going below 130 over 80, which is what we want in the way we're going to get the most benefit. And they do also say, but above 120 over 70, which I think is interesting um, because, you know, Sprint went for below 120 systolic. But anyways, I guess that's to avoid side effects. Yeah, um, I, don't, in, I don't think they mind. reached, I don't think they got that low anyway. Right. So. so they wanted between systolic between 120 and 130 ideally. So that's mm -hmm. optimal. And that's how we're going to get hopefully the best results if that's tolerated. Um, but I, I do agree. Essentially, we just want to get their blood pressure down some to start. Yeah. I definitely like the essential optimal thing too. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, so as far as like pharmacological 
treatments. Mm-hmm. So the way we we typically do uh, um, the way we typically do like our actual treatment for right. So it's kind of similar to um, to the other guidelines. Um, kind of similar to the other guidelines. So generally going to start with an Acer and ARB, just in general, um, along with something like amlodipine. So when you look at their stepwise approach, so there again, there's an essential and an optimal. So if you look at their optimal stepwise approach, they want you to start with dual low-dose combination therapy. So that's interesting. So um, a lot of times you might say, well, monotherapy might be enough for a specific patient. And then if they come in with a systolic over like 180, then we would want to go ahead and go to dual. Um, They do caveat and say, consider monotherapy in low risk, grade one hypertension, or in someone who's very old, which they describe as over 80, which I think a lot of people would take offense to that. Um, But they describe that as very old or in patients who might be frail. You can start with monotherapy. But in general, they want low dose dual therapy of um, an Acer ARB plus a calcium channel blocker. That's step one. Step two, we're going to go full doses on those. So we're going to max them out. Uh, if you had started with monotherapy, you probably want to max out the monotherapy before adding another. Um, and, but if you're starting with dual, let's go ahead and max both of them out. They have a step three, which is a triple combination where you're adding on a thiazide-like diuretic. Uh, the thiazide-like diuretics being adapamide and chlorothaladone as opposed to hydrochlorothiazide. So they do mention that they prefer the thiazide-like diuretics. So that's interesting. Um, that'd be step three. Then step four would be considered resistant. So if you're maxed on those three, which is pretty standard across most guidelines, is that's kind of what you want to start with in a patient before you get to stratifying based on comorbidity. Then you're getting into resistant hypertension. So you're doing a triple combination. They say plus spironolactone or another drug asterisk. So yeah, there's yeah. there's a few other drugs that they mention as well. And um, yeah, if, it's, if you're wondering why I just stopped mid-sentence just a minute ago, my wife was asking me a question. I could not understand what she was talking about. So sorry if it sounded like I had a stroke mid, uh, mid-podcast. mid um, I didn't even – did you talk about the uh, – I heard you say step one, step mm-hmm. two, but did you talk about like if the patient's post-stroke or – No, I haven't gone into comorbidities. This is just general, okay, general. general population. So that is one thing I, I do like is they kind of break it, break it down by um, step one generally can be – you know, any of the above agents that the, any of the three first line agents, like Cole said, but, um, they also say that you can do, um, like specifically a patient, for instance, who's uh, post-stroke, um, or very elderly, they say in that particular case to use a thiazide like diuretic, um, as well as a, um, ACE inhibitor mm-hmm. and put, so think post-stroke they're, they're taking data from like the progress trial yeah. where they did parenteprill, um, versus Prenipil plus uh, endapamide. Right. And they got the decrease in secondary stroke in that particular case. So they, and I it was like, plus or minus, too, and in the yeah. just ACE group, they didn't see the benefit. Right, exactly. Yeah. It was the combo. Um, elderly patients, we know endapamide works well. So we typically always think of a thiazide diuretic as being kind of working off of the uh, EGFR. So if it goes below 30, we typically try not to use thiazide diuretics. But endapamide actually has, I believe it's down to EGFR of 10 dosing. And then um, if they're on hemodialysis, you can use it. But endapamide, it may not have as much of a diuretic effect, obviously, in lower renal function. But it also has calcium channel blocking properties as Mm -hmm. well. And so that's kind of where they think that you're still getting that BP lowering effect with endapamide. So I like that. They mentioned in elderly patients specifically to use 
to use that. Right. Um, and then did you, uh, the spironolactone is like kind of the first one that they mention, but then they're there. Did you see how they're like kind of like baseline characteristics to see if you can be on spironolactone were different? They were slightly different. Yeah. I wonder where did they you get mention that? that. No, I did not. Okay. Mention that. I, I was like, I was, <laughs> I, I was hoping I'm not repeating everything you just said. Um, but e, the EGFR less than 45, they say that you need to use caution yeah. and then potassium greater than 4.5 mm-hmm. use caution. So Ours are more relaxed. I mean, ours are potassium five, five or less, and then I believe it's uh, uh, EGFR of twenty-five. I believe maybe thirty, twenty-five. I think it's twenty-five. One or the one or the other. Yeah, I'm gonna say twenty-five. I'll know in like three seconds when I double check myself. Yeah. So that's in, I, I don't know where they get that from because I thought that was a labeling thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I guess you know international. They don't have the FDA, do they? That's mm-hmm. an American thing. How interesting. Things we don't think about. Um. Yeah. Back to general population two, they have an essential um, little column. So I talked about the step one through four before we go into comorbidities. Um, but they did have an essential column saying, use whatever drugs are available with as many of the ideal characteristics as possible. So they kind of address if you're having trouble either getting medications or just getting patients certain medications. Um, they recommend using free combinations if the single drugs are not available or unaffordable. Um, they say if you can't get a thiazide-like diuretic, to use a thiazide diuretic, which would be hydrochlorothiazide, um, or if you can't get a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, to use a non-dihydropyridine. So these are definitely not ideal situations, but these are just kind of, I guess, situations where you got to work with what you got. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was interesting is when they when you mentioned they said other drugs. Yeah. <laughs> the, the asterisk there literally says alternatives include amylaride, Doxazosin, a plerinone, clonidine, or beta blocker, or any other agent that you haven't tried yet. <laughs> All right. Any other drug class. <laughs> I was like, it's huh. antihypertensive. So the, that I don't love. <laughs> um, I definitely think it would need to be a little bit more, I don't know, streamlined than that. I know, you know, our guidelines aren't don't lay it out perfectly either. But, um, one thing that they do mention that I like one spironolactone, I definitely agree should kind of be the fourth line agent as right. long as they can tolerate it and meet the criteria. So we've talked about pathway two, that trial that they did, um, where they compared spironolactone, uh, bisoprolol and doxazosin and mm-hmm. patients with resistant hypertension, spironolactone had better blood pressure lowering. Um, there's also like uh, a system, um, Systematic review meta-analysis that was done in 2016 that um, compared multiple fourth-line agents together, and spironolactone won on that one as well. Um, so there's there's multiple studies that have kind of shown that it's it's better. Uh, there was one that did uh, it was I think it was um, yeah versus clonidine. So the rehot trial. Um, and that one showed that basically spironolactone because clonidine we think of like giving clonidine to patients in the when they're in the office, right. like to randomly drop their blood, but that's not right. Like, you think of it like in hypertensive crisis or something like that. Yeah. And even then now there's studies coming out saying maybe amlodipine might even be better than clonidine because of the long half-life. Right. Um, but clonidine is definitely not one of the things I think about when I'm thinking like I'll send this person home on right. month long therapy. Clonidine is not my guy. Though I have a lot of people that are. Interestingly. Yeah. 
I also I've I stopped somebody. I've stopped multiple people in the yeah. last couple of months. I should, say, I, I should say I dispense it to them, not that I'm not <laughs> the one treating them. No, I mean it, it, it's something that's been around forever, so you still yeah. see it. But see the patches too. Yeah. How interesting. That I feel like. No, I don't. I, every time I dispense it, I'm like, I don't get this. Unless that's like unless you're using it for like adult ADHD or something like that, then which they're most likely not. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean they they'll use it in like uh, you know um, substance abuse mm-hmm. withdrawals. Yeah. But yeah, this yeah. is not you know. Not they want to use the patch for that. Right. So it's definitely hypertension. So, yeah, spironolactone is definitely uh, the one I always think of being my go-to. The If that's not an option, you know, when they say, like, doxazosin, I'm really not a fan of doxazosin at all. I mean, yeah. if we think back to, like, all hat, um, there was we always think lisinopril, amlodipine, chlorothalidin. That's the three that we always talk about. We always forget that there was a fourth arm in that in that uh, study that was stopped early which was doxazosin because we saw increased risk of heart failure <laughs> so i mean i i don't know i just can't get my head around why we want to use doxazosin i've heard people say well, like, well if the patient has bph, BPH all that, yeah. but even then the guidelines for bph say don't use doxazosin use tamsulosin because it's selective yep so i don't know yeah but i'm not a fan of doxazosin um i definitely wouldn't just say generically use any beta blocker um, and now our guidelines, I do matter. like, I do like that it specifies alpha beta blockers. So mm-hmm. carvedilol or labetalol. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just use a beta blocker and you guys have heard me say this a million times, but beta blocker, you're going to block beta receptors. That's great. Whether it's selective or non-selective, you're blocking beta receptors, but now you have norepinephrine still needing to bind something to something. So alpha receptors, are the only thing left over. Now you're getting unopposed alpha activity, which in the periphery can cause vasoconstriction over time. So initially, yeah, you'll get some blood pressure lowering because you're decreasing heart rate. So that's going to decrease cardiac output. Um, so blood pressure is equal to cardiac output times total peripheral resistance. So though, yeah, you'll get some blood pressure lowering at first, but then if the total peripheral resistance starts to go up, now we are worried about the either the kind of counterbalancing those effects right. or the blood pressure actually going up again. Right. So um, alpha beta blocker is going to be way more effective, you know, if you're just treating hypertension. Now, if they have other comorbidities, post-MI, heart failure, that's a different story. Right. But. Yeah, they do. So you mentioned a couple comorbidities. They also talk about coronary artery disease, and they recommend an ACER R plus beta blocker, no matter the blood pressure levels, with or without a calcium channel blocker is the first line in a hypertensive patient. Yeah. They also uh, mentioned getting a target LDL of less than 55, which is... Um, Pretty interesting. So that's kind of like our ACE guidelines. Right. They like have like the extremely, extreme, yeah, yeah, extreme risk. But they just say coronary artery disease, boom, LDL less than 55. Hmm. Do it. And they, they also recommend um, PCSK PCSK9s over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, um, in the, I didn't look. Did they say aspirin for primary prevention as well? No, nah, it says if they have coronary artery uh, disease, okay. which, which is still kind of a general... Well, it's kind of general. If it's second, I guess if they've had like acute coronary syndrome, I guess that's what they're then, considering because yeah. they say CAD, but they must be referring to that. Because I'm, I typically like thinking CAD. I'm thinking it's either stable ischemic heart disease or ACS. Right. And if it's stable and primary prevention, I'm not. not I wouldn't want to use aspirin, but yeah, ACS probably go ahead and right. But they just throw say, that on there. They say CAD, and then they say hypertension and post-stroke LDL down to seventy. So yeah, they have to be talking about ACS. Yeah. I would think. I don't know. We'll have to look deeper to see. Um, what else is different? In, or I guess not different, but... Uh, they talk about heart failure with hypertension, mm-hmm. uh, with it being a high-risk factor. They talk about lifestyle recommendations with that. Um, 
they want the target less than 130 over 80, just like the general, but above 120. And then they go through the kind of the regular gist with, um, with the heart failure meds, ACR, beta blocker, uh, mineral corticoids, um, so spironolactone. And they also talk about the RNAs, indicated for treatment of HEFREF. Um, they don't really say whether that should be first line or not, but they, they do mention it. Yeah, they uh, they even go into pregnancy and mer- um, hypertensive emergency and all that good stuff as mm-hmm. well. They also talk a lot about adherence and the important of, importance of monitoring um, adherence before before either increasing a medication or swapping. I think that's always a good reminder. Yeah, and if they if you pull up the guidelines um, online because they're they're free to download, uh, if you pull up the guidelines online, uh, the last like three pages before you get to the reference uh, basically has full like like diagrams of their yes. algorithms um, going through the diagnosis, um, their evaluation and then treatment options based on comorbidities, uh, ethnicity, all that good stuff. Right. Um, so it's a nice little, little table there. Um, they have monitoring and then they, yeah, break it up even further from there. So, <laughs> um, the, they have the thing on here where they say spinalactone or, and they just list a thousand medications. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, not anything too crazy different. I think my personal kind of takeaway is, I, I mean, I tend to still think the lower blood pressure goals are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then I do like the idea of of being very specific with which combinations that we use. Like when they say um, ACER-R plus calcium channel blocker instead of jumping right to ACER-R plus thiazide. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about, I mean like accomplish, which we've talked about a bunch on here, but you know, we get the same blood pressure lowering, but different mm-hmm. outcomes. Yep. So until we like, I feel like definitively get a trial, which is coming hopefully in a year or two from the VA, um, where they've compared HCTZ to Corthalidone head to head. Like, I think it's gonna be really hard to fully say, you know, one way or the other, but we just have to go on what we have right. data on. Right. We could be wrong. That's kind of, uh, I hope not. Cause it's going to be so much. I know. Like, Going back and be like, oh, sorry about but, that. But, you know, just like Dr. Wirt said in our infamous episode 100, you mm-hmm. go based on what the data you have, and then if something new comes out, you you know, you say, well. <laughs> <Just> apologize later. <laughs> yeah, it's just, well, hey, we're going to switch it. Yo, yikes. Um, but, yeah, they do talk a little bit about drugs that can increase risk or exacerbate hypertension. So they talk about NSAIDs. They also talk about OCPs, so contraceptives, mm-hmm. uh, certain antidepressants, daily acetaminophen use. They say it gives a relative risk increase of 1.34. Interesting. Also, herbal hmm. supplements and stuff they talk about. So, healthy diet, decreased salt, all that good stuff. Salt is the enemy. It tends to be. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I found uh, my one of my students pointed me out to um, the Mrs. Dash stuff. Have you heard of that? Hmm. It's like a, it's a no salt. Oh, the no salt like yeah. substitute thing. Substitute right? things. Yeah. There's. Um, Wait, and I tried it, and it's very good. Is it? Yeah. Is it potassium? Or what well, is it? no. So the one I got is just a mix of herbs, but apparently there is the potassium supplement, which tastes like salt because it, you know, it's a mineral. Yeah. Um, but then doesn't increase your salt. I'd have to think that that would be a concern. It could be a concern for you know just to be dosing yourself with a bunch of potassium, but maybe not. Maybe it's Sper- not. I'm much. on spironolactone. I'm on potassium. <laughs> is it probably that I'm using potassium iodide <laughs> right. as my salt? But I thought that was cool. I had not heard of that, so I thought that was really cool. So it's just a bunch of herbs. 
Well, the one I have is a bunch of herbs, and it is pretty tasty. But mm-hmm. I imagine if I could get my hands on the potassium stuff, it would be even better. I'm sure you probably could. <laughs> no, yeah, well, I didn't see it at, you know. It's Bilo or wherever. Right, wherever <laughs> I shop. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the herbs thing is always sketchy because I'm like, yeah, it's perfectly natural and stuff. And the next thing you know, growing a third arm, you're like, oh, <laughs> perfect. Uh, did you hear about Bilo? Yeah. All their, bunch of their pharmacies closing? Mm-hmm. Man, it's crazy. Yeah. And then Walgreens just laid off a lot of... Um, Apparently, this is just hearsay from, but it apparently laid off a lot of people, so there's not a whole bunch of jobs. There's gonna be a lot of farms out of jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm. Remember that episode? What three or four we said we recorded back in 2017? Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Y'all get ready, yeah, it's, it's coming. coming." You're gonna be like, uh, you're gonna be like the what is it? Nostradamus. The, it could be that. <laughs> no, the show that predicts the animated show that predicts everything. The Simpsons. Oh, you're gonna be like the Simpsons. That yes. Yeah. Exactly what I was going for. Yeah. Anything else on this stuff? We already got here? Nope. It's cool. good. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Um, sorry it took us a while to get back on track with releasing episodes. Um, no good excuses. Just <laughs> just busy. <laughs> we'll just use COVID as the excuse. Yeah. It's an excuse for Even everything. Even though it's not. But, um, yeah, so thank you guys for listening so much as always. Um, make sure if you have any questions, our emails are in the show notes. We have, uh, you can contact us on any of the social media platforms. Um, if you want to support the podcast at all, um, make sure you check out Patreon. Um, we've actually been getting people, more and more people each week um, on Patreon, which we are super, super thankful for. Um, it's basically $3 a month, and you get access to um, usually around three hours of pharmacotherapy lectures a week with full slide sets and all that good stuff. Um, so I try to be consistent with posting on there, and um, we take the money and then reinvest it into the show to make it better for you guys anyway. So um, it's an investment in your future. <laughs> it's an investment in yourself. And if you, if you can't afford $3 a month, hit us up. We'll give it to you for free. We're not really that worried about it. Um, just don't tell the people who are paying <laughs> no, but, uh, thank you guys so much as always. Um, send us an email, um, reach out to us. We'll be happy to get back to you as quick as we can and until next time. Thank y'all.